You're listening to the Out Loud Bible Project podcast with Mike Dominey. Out Loud Bible Project is on a mission to read the entire Bible out loud in a conversational and approachable way, so you can recognize your part in this conversation between you and God. Welcome back to the Out Loud Bible Project Podcast. Mike here. We're reading the Bible as a conversation so that we can find our next best yes in our relationship with God. If you're enjoying this process of looking to the Bible, what does the Bible say? And you feel like God is putting something on your heart to do something and it feels bigger than you and it feels scary. Uh, whatever that may be. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to go check out the Next Best Yes podcast that uh, my wife Kelsey and I host, and we have conversations about how to develop this idea that God has put on our heart. Maybe it's more than an idea. Maybe it feels like a like a mission that he's, he's given you, that you see some problem in the world and you want to go solve it. You want to go be a part of the solution. Uh, then we talk through some very practical steps and encouragements about how to say yes, even in these difficult times that don't make sense. When God calls you to do something that doesn't make sense, and you know what happens all the time, what do we do about that? It's a great discussion over at the Next Best Yes podcast. If that's of interest to you, if that's where you feel like God is kind of leading you in that direction, uh, we'd love to continue the conversation over there. But for here on the Out Loud Bible Project podcast, we are here in the book of Leviticus, which is strange to think that we could find anything of use today in the book of Leviticus, because like we've said, it is basically the handbook, the the spiral-bound guidebook that the Levitical priests the, from the tribe of Levi, the priests would use to go about their business in a way that honors God and helps people get right with God as the priests did. Uh, it's a whole new thing for these people who were not too long ago slaves in Egypt, and now Some are being appointed as priests, and they have all of these roles and responsibilities, and the book of Leviticus is helping lay out what those regulations are in uh, in light of who God is, and God has very strict guidelines. It's a lot to memorize and a a very high standard to reach for all of a sudden. This is just the third episode as we've talked about Leviticus, and we are wrapping up the book of Leviticus, all 27 chapters we've covered in just three episodes because we've been doing a bit of a a flyover of the book, not reading every single word of it. Uh, You're certainly welcome to if you would like to. Um, And it might even make some more sense after our discussion here if you want to go into it and and dig into some of the details, by all means. Um, But just because it is the Bible and it is inspired and all scripture is useful for teaching and correcting not everything is readable. You know, not everything necessarily uh, makes a a fun reading time. And so we're not going to be legalistic about reading every single word here as we go through this podcast. I thought thought we might at some point, yeah, let's get every word spoken some way or another. But I'm realizing that's not always necessarily what's most helpful. 
So I don't want to be a replacement for your own Bible study, but if this can help you go into the Bible with a little bit more understanding, if you want to go read the words, or if you are satisfied with our discussion here, uh, don't take my word for it. See what the Bible says. Hold everything I say up to what the Bible says. Um, But if this can bring any more understanding to your uh, study of Scripture, then, hey, praise God. That's awesome. I think there's a lot of value here, even in the book of, of Leviticus. So we pick up today in Leviticus chapter 21, where God gives instructions for priests, the priests themselves of future generations. He restricts access to the priestly duties to some who have defects. Like he says, who are blind or lame or disfigured or deformed or has a broken foot or broken arm or is hunchbacked or dwarfed or has a defective eye or skin. Like... They are not allowed to serve, uh, approach the altar to present special gifts to the Lord. This doesn't seem politically correct, does it? We're a little bit uncomfortable with this, and so it doesn't make a very good sermon. Uh, God does say that he can eat from the food offered to God, so his needs are taken care of, just like all the priests could eat of the food offered to God, a certain portion so that they could be provided for. That was kind of their wage. Um, But... They were, he says, because of the physical defect, he cannot enter the room behind the inner curtain or approach the altar, for this would defile my holy place, says the Lord. Kind of uncomfortable with that, aren't we? We have to remember that all of this that we read about in the Old Testament, how God wants to interact with his people and how he wants them to interact with him, all of this is supposed to point to the Messiah coming. Remember, even back in Genesis, God pointed to the fact that, yes, I know this is all broken. This is all sinful. This is bad. But I am sending someone who will crush the serpent's head and who will make everything right again. And even covering Adam and Eve and their sin was what? The death of a lamb. God used to make clothes to cover them up, literally. And throughout the Old Testament, even before this law, there was lots of precedent for God killing a ram or a sheep or a lamb to be able to cover the sins and prevent the death that is the consequence of sin. That's what the Passover was about. These people, even before this law came onto the scene, were used to this idea of something must die. That makes us right before God. He counts that death as uh, covering the penalty of our sin. They're used to that. So by the time Jesus comes onto the scene and he calls himself the Lamb of God, then we should be able to take a look at his sacrifice and be, oh, I I see, I see that. I see how that has been what God has been foreshadowing this entire time. So as we read these things, we got to remember that this is not how God even intended for things to last forever. This isn't how... This, these laws, these regulations, this wasn't supposed to be the, yep, this is how life is. It was all, like Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, all of this law was just to protect people in the meantime until Jesus came. And so when we see in Leviticus 21, 23, God saying, yet because of his physical defect, he may not enter the room behind the inner curtain or approach the altar. Then we get to look at Matthew 25, 51, when Jesus was dying on the cross. And it says that the curtain, the same curtain, which separated the most holy place from the holy place of the temple, this curtain was torn in two 
from top to bottom, as if God ripped it from heaven himself, as if to say, no more restricted access. Everyone can access God through the Father, now that his sacrifice has been shown as acceptable before God to cover the consequence of our sins. All of this is foreshadowing. Chapter 22 in Leviticus talks about worthy and unworthy offerings. God is saying, I don't want your broken-legged sheep. I don't want your bulls with these defects. I don't want your sick animals as sacrifices. I want you to give your best to the Lord because that's what a sacrifice is. If it's like, well, instead of killing this thing and putting it out of its misery, I can at least give it to God and they'll kill it. The priest will kill it, right? God's like, no, I don't I don't want your leftovers and I don't want your sick things that you're just going to get rid of anyway. Where's the sacrifice in that? Where's the offering of that? God says, no, give me your best. I deserve your best and I want your heart to be one that honors the Lord, right? Chapter 23 talks about festivals and celebrations and there's a whole list here. First of all, the Sabbath of just resting on the seventh day because that's how God created. He worked six days to create and then he rested on the seventh. Even before the book of Genesis was written to tell us about that or to tell God's people about that, God is giving this law here now to these people. Um, Sabbath, Passover, uh, which was them leaving Egypt, the festival of the unleavened bread, celebration of first harvest, uh, the festival of the harvest, festival of trumpets, day of atonement, festival of shelters, all of these festivals and, and how to celebrate them. God's people were going to be in this rhythm of remembering and honoring God, not forgetting what he's done living a little bit differently, keeping these in the DNA of their culture where we have continually throughout the year multiple festivals and celebrations and harvests and remembering who God is and what he's done. The point is, like it says in verse 43 of chapter 23, this will remind each new generation of Israel that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It makes you wonder, what do you do to celebrate, commemorate, honor, and remember what God has done for you in your life. Sure, we celebrate Easter and we and Good Friday, we remember that Jesus died and came back to life. And we celebrate Christmas, we, we remember that he was born, he came to earth in human form. That's awesome. Those are great. Also communion. Hopefully you have communion at church and that is something that Jesus himself asked us to remember, uh, to remember what he did. What have you done to just celebrate things in your own life where you have seen God show up in some certain way? Do you have a, an anniversary of a time where you saw that God showed up and, and blessed you or did a miracle in your life? How do you celebrate that? Don't let it fall into obscurity and fade away in your memory. What do we do to remember what God has done? And that draws us closer to him each time. Chapter 24 in Leviticus gives some examples of just punishment what justice looks like. And it tells a story, and I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation here. One day, a man who had an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father came out of his tent and got into a fight with one of the Israelite men. Now, during the fight, this son of an Israelite woman blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. So the man was brought to Moses for judgment. His mother was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they kept the man in custody until the Lord's will in the matter should become clear to them. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp and tell all those who heard the curse to lay their hands on his head. Then let the entire community stone him to death. Say to the people of Israel, Those who curse their God will be punished for their sin. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. Any native-born Israelite or foreigner among you who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Then God goes on to list more consequences of sin, of what it looks like to punish justly. He says, anyone who takes another person's life must be put to death. Anyone who kills another person's animal must pay for it in full, the live animal for the animal that was killed. Anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted, a fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. Now, this sounds vicious, doesn't it? It sounds like revenge, like, ah, yes, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And in fact, that's how people ended up taking it. As Jesus had to correct in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he even quotes this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But it's not about revenge. It's not about vengeance. God was actually, with this law here in Leviticus, actually helping people not overreact and overpunish. He says, anyone who does anything to injure another person must be paid back in kind, not above and beyond. This is... Preventing people who maybe damage someone's eye so that it it they lose their sight from that person wanting to just kill them and pay back more so that they really feel it, right? God doesn't want that. This is all about justice. It's all about equal treatment. And these laws here are showing God's heart of, look, I don't want you to take matters into your own hands. Be fair. Be just. Repay equally for what was taken. Chapter 25 talks about more rhythms that God is instituting in the life of his people. The Sabbath year, we talked about the Sabbath day, which is the seventh day of a week. The Sabbath year is every seventh year where God instructed the people to let their land rest and not harvest, not plant, just let the land rest for a whole year. And then every seven Sabbath years, which is 49 years, all the slaves were to be released and all the land that was bought and sold over the years was going to return to its original owners. Okay, now naturally you would have questions about these things, right? Wait, the Sabbath year thing, wait, no planting or harvesting that entire year? How are we going to survive? Or about the year of Jubilee thing, like what, what if you buy or sell property a couple of years before the next year of Jubilee when it has to go back to the owner? Like you're only going to have it for a couple of years? Okay, well, listen, God addresses all of these things. He says in verse 14, when you make an agreement with your neighbor to buy or sell property, you must not take advantage of each other. When you buy land from the neighbor, the price you pay must be based on the number of years since the last Jubilee. The more years until the next jubilee, the higher the price, the fewer years, the lower the price. God's thinking about all these things. He's trying to make it so that you can go about your life and not live in conflict with people and have to figure everything out. He's got the answers for it. He has the wisdom that we need. Now, I know we're, again, we're not living in the same laws and we're not living in the same expectations here in the book of Leviticus. So when I say we, I, I kind of mean the, the general we, but we can apply these things, these principles that we learn from God that 
that, look, God has the answers and he has a way for us to live in peace with people. And he has a way for things to just be fair and equitable. We can trust him and not have to feel like we have to figure everything out on ourselves. He goes on in verse 18 to talk about what it is like to live with this Sabbath year, every seventh year, letting the land rest. If you want to live securely in the land, follow my decrees and obey my regulations. Then the land will yield large crops and you'll eat your fill and live securely in it. But you might ask, what will we eat during the seventh year since we're not allowed to plant or harvest crops that year? Be assured that I will send my blessing for you in the sixth year so that the land will produce a crop large enough for three years. If you're doing the math, you may have expected maybe two. But he says three. When you plant your fields in the eighth year, you will be eating from the large crop of the sixth year. In fact, you'll still be eating from that large crop when the new crop is harvested in the ninth year, above and beyond what you need. One application we need to draw from this is do what God says, even when it doesn't make sense. He'll provide for you in ways that prove to you that he is your provider. And did you notice how he, how it's just above and beyond in this situation? It reminds me of Jesus's teaching in Matthew 6.33, where, where Jesus says, seek God's kingdom first, and he'll add all of these provisions. In other words, do what God says, and he'll make sure your needs are met. You don't need to carve your own way and provide for yourself and only do things that make sense to you. So later in chapter 25, God shares his heart for the poor and the enslaved. And man, there's a lot of people who try to find fault with the Bible saying, oh, the Bible condones slavery because in the Old Testament, yeah. And and even in Paul's teachings in the New Testament, there are some verses that instruct slaves and masters on how to exist in peace and order, but they don't flat out condemn it, right? And so some people have a problem with, well, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? They must approve slavery. Like, okay, listen, the Bible is not a social reform book. It's always about God drawing hearts closer to himself, regardless of the sinful situations they find themselves in. Verses 42 through 43 in this chapter reveal the heart of God on this issue of slavery. It says, the people of Israel are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. So they must never be sold as slaves. Show your fear of God by not treating them harshly. That's the heart of God. Talk about learning more about the heart of God. If you only read one chapter of what we've talked about here in Leviticus, I would recommend it be chapter 26, the second to last chapter in the book. Leviticus 26 really demonstrates God's hope and plan and heart for his people as he talks about the blessings of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter 26 now for the sake of time. I don't, it's not like I'm given homework, but sure, I'll give you homework. Why don't you go ahead and read chapter 26 of Leviticus on your own sometime today. But what we see here is this progression. God wants to bless his people. And he says, if you follow my decrees and you obey my commands, I'm going to send you the seasonal rains and that produces crops and the trees will produce and your harvests will be plentiful and you'll live securely in your land and you'll have peace. You're going to be able to sleep without fear. No wild animals will even live in your land and the enemies will be kept out of your, of your land. You're going to chase down your enemies and slaughter them. Five of you, he says, will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000, like just this disproportionate blessing. 
this disproportionate power of God working in the lives of of his people so people can just be like, what is up with these Israelites? It's crazy. He goes on. He's like, I I will look favorably upon you and I'll make you fertile and your people will multiply and I'm going to fulfill my covenant with you. You'll have more crops than you need. You're going to have to clear out the old crops to make room for the new crops. I'm going to live among you. I don't despise you. I want to walk among you. I want to be your God. You'll be my people. And so that everyone will, will be able to see that I brought you out of the land of Egypt and I broke the yoke of slavery so that you can walk with your heads held high. Isn't that a great promise? That's God's plan. But he goes on to say, however, in verse 14, if you don't listen to me or obey all of these commands, then I'll punish you. I'll bring sudden terrors upon you. And he talks about diseases and fevers and your crops are going to fail and enemies are going to attack you. And he says, if in spite of all this, if you still disobey me, then the punishment will be seven times stronger. He says, I'm going to break your proud spirit. Is it because God is vengeful and wrathful? I don't know. It's just because God cares about you and knows the consequences of what it's like to live, try to live without him. He doesn't want that for you. And he says, even if then you remain hostile, I'll inflict disaster on you seven times more. And he describes what that looks like. And then he says, and if you still fail to learn the lesson and you continue your hostility toward me, I'm going to send it seven times more. And then he says again, if in spite of all this, if you still refuse to listen and still remain hostile toward me, then I will give full vent to my hostility seven times more. And he threatens exile. He says, your land will get its rest. If you let it get to this point, because you're going to leave, I'll take you out of the land and your land will get the rest that it needs. And those of you who survive, you will be demoralized living in this place. But God offers in verse 40, at last, my people will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors for betraying me and being hostile toward me. And when I have turned their hostility back on them and brought them to the land of their enemies, then at last their stubborn hearts will be humbled and they will pay for their sins. Then I'm, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and Abraham. And I'll remember the land. Verse 44, despite all this, I will not utterly reject or despise them while they're in exile in the land of their enemies. I will not cancel my covenant with them by wiping them out, for I am the Lord their God. For their sakes, I will remember my ancient covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. I wish literarily that the book ended there. It's a great end cap to the book of Leviticus, but there is one more chapter, chapter 27, which outlines how to value different types of offerings given. It's like an appendix in the Levite handbook. But all of these chapters seek to show the heart of God as caring about peace, order, justice, holiness, and the tension between all those things. So this concludes our flyover discussion of the book of Leviticus. Remember, 1 Peter 2.9 writes that you are a royal priesthood. You are God's new line of priests. Aren't you glad you don't have to memorize all these guidelines? (laughs) But God's desire for you is the same. Help others connect with God. Live a pure and holy life so that you can carry God's name well and not drag his name through the mud. Seek justice for those who are oppressed. Allow rest for yourselves and your work. 
trust God even when it doesn't make sense and live in such a way so that others will want the God that you serve. That's what it means to be God's holy people and royal priesthood today. Are you living that way? That's the Thinking Out Loud thought for today. You've been listening to the Out Loud Bible Project podcast with Mike Dominey. When you become a patron of Out Loud Bible Project, you help make the Bible accessible for people who desperately need to know they have a role in this conversation with God. To learn more, visit outloudbible.com and click support this project. Thanks for listening.